the day on the loaded goat, Mayberry kind of forgets a few things about U.S. history. Oh, really? Like what, Aaron? Well, that the uh, Civil War took place. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it did happen. It was it was actually pretty significant. We should uh, we should take some time offline. We could talk about it and the impact it had on our country. I mean, it's uh, it's it's been well documented. I think it's uh, it's. Oh, you got the History Channel. You can you can watch the History Channel. You can watch documentaries. I think there have been more books written about it. But I think most people could. If you, if you were were off the top of your head, could you tell me the years the Civil War took place? Definitely, 1965 to 1984 to, until Reagan said, "Tear down that wall, Jefferson Davis." I um. How'd I do? I'm I'm really, really, really disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad answer. Um, I actually, you know, sixty-one to you're gonna make me look like a fool. Six sixty-five. Yeah, that's correct. So this is this obviously the issue here in, in Mayberry goes bankrupt is that they're about to foreclose on an individual who is in you know who whose house has gone to is decrepit he's you know he's not doing well he finds a municipal bond that was issued in 1861 where the interest compounds they think they owe him over a quarter of a million dollars they can't pay it they fix up his house it turns out they realized it was Confederate money. We're going to do the walkthrough, but the reason we wanted to talk about this and, and the reason we're giving you this overview is since this issue focuses on Confederate money and Civil War money and currency, we brought on an expert who specializes in Civil War currency. We'd also like to take this moment and interrupt this podcast for a word from our sponsor, Fannie Mae. If you've got someone outside of town that has an ugly house and is ruining the curb appeal of your city, call Fannie Mae and they'll evict you. How was that? Let's dive, let's, let's, um, let's dive into the interview. <laughs> So since today's episode has a tie-in with Confederate money at the end, we wanted to speak with somebody who has expertise in this area, and we're fortunate to have Pierre Fricke on the episode. He is a collector and dealer of vintage currency, specifically with the civil, specifically Civil War currency and Confederate and Union dollars. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, Chris, you, you want to kick this off? Yeah, so kind of interested in that you mentioned that you're from, from New Orleans and lived in Ohio and now live in Texas. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into selling obsolete money and uh, old brass Bitcoin. Bitcoin sounds like Bitcoin. Well, I, I, you know, Bitcoin's kind of a different topic, but uh, we won't go there today. But uh, I'm from uh, New Orleans. My uh, family uh, goes back, uh, at least some parts of it go back pretty far. I'm one eighth Cajun, uh, which means we go back to the 1700s in the swamps uh, out in Louisiana. And um, so how I got into this, I was um, a, uh, my grandmother gave me coins, uh, old coins when I was eight years old. I got interested in coins, um, you know, when I was a teenager or actually before I was a teenager and, uh, you know, got into collecting you know, all the stuff that people back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, early 70s really collected, you know, Lincoln cents and all that kind of stuff. Got into early American copper coins. Lincoln's and Indian cents were cool, but the big large cents were even cooler from the 1850s and before. And uh, I've been a large cent collector ever since I was about 12, uh, off our dealer and collector both. 
off and on over, over the years. Uh, so that is something that got me into it. Uh, you know, during the dot-com boom in the 90s, I'm in high tech. Uh, I worked at, uh, you know, companies like IBM and Red Hat, and now I work at a company called Rackspace. Uh, you know, the dot-com boom was, uh, you know, I kind of put this aside for a while. In that time, in the late 90s, I actually uh, it was uh, did a reenactment or two. Um, I can say I was captured at Gettysburg uh, in, uh, in 1998, not 1863, but uh, uh, in the little round top assault, it was kind of interesting. But um, uh, so, I mean, that got me interested in Civil War money because, you know, that kind of ties into coins and the Confederate stuff and the Union uh, paper money and how, I mean, that was really the foundation, et cetera. So that really was a very fascinating period because everything, a lot of stuff changed. Uh, and, and the Confederates had a set of experiments. The Union had a set of experiments. The Union uh, financial system proved to be more superior uh, because it wasn't as complex and convoluted. It was backed by more gold and things, whereas the Confederates were printing money left and right and forced people to exchange old series into a new series. And that actually, second to slavery, which is the number one, re one reason why I think they lost, the second reason why they lost is their financial system didn't really support them very well and, and send people to do the right things. So uh, I got interested in that. And for about 20 years now, I've been a collector, a dealer, uh, author, uh, et cetera. Well, you mentioned the Confederacy and the Confederate money and the currency system. I mean, it does see, feel like when you read about the Confederacy that they literally started a government almost overnight, it feel, you know, in, in reading about it. But I was always curious, how were they able to just print and circulate their money so quickly? Uh, well, first of all, Union, uh, United States money was circulating and uh, obsolete banknotes uh, issued by the banks. So the, the United States minted coins and the banks issued paper money. So there was thousands of different banks that issued paper money. Most of this paper money was printed at, 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 in the Northeast New York uh, banking, you know, the National Bank Note Company, the American Bank Note Company, and other ones. There was a branch uh, in New Orleans of the American Bank Note Company, which after they seceded was renamed Southern Bank Note Company for for, to be more politically correct or whatever you want to call it. Um, so they, uh, interestingly enough, you know, they formed the government in February. Uh, the secretary manager uh, was the, uh, you know, who was the secretary of treasury, uh, engaged the national, uh, the American bank note company in New York City. There was no war yet, right? So they were at peace. New York, uh, the national, uh, the American bank note company uh, took the order for bonds and notes. Uh, contracted the notes out to the National Bank Note Company, and they printed the bonds. Uh, so the first shipment of that came down before the war. Um, the second shipment of that, of the, of these were Montgomery. The notes were Montgomery, issued out of Montgomery because Montgomery was the capital. And they were interest-bearing. They paid. They were like 3.65% interest is what these notes bore. And there was $1,000, 500 50 and 100 Four denominations. They didn't print very many of them uh, to start. The second shipment, uh, so there's 607 of those sheets printed with all four denominations. Then there was half sheets of 50s and 100 printed 999 of those. Uh, that's really not very much money. I mean, people were changing their gold. The citizens were supporting the cause and so forth. So they would turn in their gold and buy these 3.65% bearer uh, paper money. They circulated as money some, but they were more like bearer bonds. Uh, when the war started, then they had to ramp up their production. Uh, they seized the mints. Uh, in New Orleans and then uh, in Dahlonega, Georgia and, uh, and, and Charlotte, North Carolina, when it, it succeeded, but they didn't nearly have, they, the government needed the gold and silver, the specie for its foreign trade to, to start a government. So they didn't make coins except for four patterns of a half dollar in, in New Orleans. They, um, they ended up printing money. So they went to uh, printers in Richmond that used some, you know, uh, stock kinds of vignettes and that kind of crappy, you know, kind of paper that wasn't very good quality. 
uh, Hoyer and Ludwig. They went to the Southern Banknote Company in New Orleans, which had much higher quality plates and uh, printing capabilities and, and printed some high quality notes in New Orleans. And they ramped up production from hundreds to tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of notes, $100 notes, $50 notes, $20 notes, and so forth. So they ramped it up on their own production. They imported paper from all kinds of places. They had the ability to produce some paper themselves in Bath, South Carolina, and others. The inks they made generally themselves uh, from various things. And uh, they were able to ramp it up and have uh, paper money circulating in, in pretty good quantities by, uh, by the late summer of 1861. Um, so they went to, uh, so they printed all this paper money um, in different, seven different series in the South. The Southern, unlike the Union, the United States Constitution, which forbade the states for issuing paper money, the Southern states under Confederate Constitution could print paper money. So the states issued paper money. So you can find notes on, from Louisiana, you can find notes from Alabama, Virginia. Uh, that are nice complements to the national treasury notes of the Confederacy. You won't find that in the North. Uh, both sides printed, uh, uh, the banks had uh, paper money uh, printed for themselves, although that kind of slowed down in the South. They had to use what was on hand because they didn't have a lot of printing capability. The North, they continued to print obsolete bank notes. But the, uh, in the North, they uh, issued uh, what they called demand notes at first, and then they issued uh, legal tender, the first, the greenbacks, as they call them. And uh, the, the, the uh, demand notes could be uh, were as good as gold. It could be changed for gold, although they weren't technically backed by gold because you could pay taxes with them. And there was an income tax being imposed in the North uh, at some point. Those things disappeared pretty fast uh, because they were they would, you could pay taxes with them. The legal tender notes you couldn't pay taxes with, but you could use, use them for anything else in the North. And they standardized the system and kept the same notes, the same system. They were good uh, throughout the war. In fact, they're still legal tender today, although you'd be foolish to spend one because... Um, well, for two reasons. One is they're worth far more than face value now, hundreds of thousands or thousands of dollars. And secondly, the people at the cashier would probably think you were trying to rob them. Although, and actually you were giving them a gift. <laughs> they would know what it was. Most, most people wouldn't know what it was. But the Confederate stuff, uh, on the other hand, uh, as a civil war, I mean, they were printing money. They tried to, they tried to expire the old series and replace them with the, the bluebacks, the, the red notes with the bluebacks that are, we, we know about, except the 500 and the low denominations didn't have bluebacks. Those things they printed uh, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth, which doesn't sound like a lot today, but was a lot of money back then. And um, that caused inflation. So what happened was the Confederate money generally was worth less over the war. I mean, during 18, early 1864, when it looked like Grant was gonna lose to Lee and Sherman was bogged down in front of Atlanta, the Confederate money actually increased in value some. Um, union money decreased in value too, but nowhere near as much. And after Gettysburg started coming back, to par, it never got fully back to par, uh, dollar for a dollar for gold, but it wasn't very far off. I think union money fell to about, I don't remember exactly, but let's call it two to one. Uh, Confederate money, uh, when Lee surrendered, was he took 80 Confederate dollars to buy one uh, gold dollar. And, uh, and then it kept on trading all the way to May 1st. And the last trade that in this one depository where I got the, got the records showed 1600 to one. I don't know who took $1,600 of Confederate money for a dollar of gold. Um, which is about one twentieth of an ounce of gold, by the way, back then. Uh, but they did on May first. I mean, there were still some armies west of Alabama still fighting, but they weren't going to last much longer. So the Confederate money basically uh, became worthless uh, at the end of the war, at least as a as a monetary as a monetary vehicle. As a collector vehicle, there were already people in the Northeast. Soldiers were bringing this stuff back as souvenirs. Um, there were some people that figured out the Montgomery notes were really rare and, and uh, 
1865, not too long after the war ended, just a few months, an auction in New York City, a $500 note went for $2.50, and a $1,000 note went for $4.50 as a collectible in December 1865 in New York City. So the soldiers were bringing this stuff back up north uh, to uh, souvenirs. They'd play poker with it at night, and they'd like campfires with it and, and all that. But they brought this stuff back up north, and uh, the first significant collections of this stuff started in the 1860s uh, between, you know, Boston, Philadelphia, New York City. Hmm. So with it being worthless, have you ever heard of something happening like what we saw on this episode of the Andy Griffith show, or is that just the most, or is it, or is it kind of random, I suppose? Well, I think it's kind of wishful thinking because, um, and there was actually not so much in the Andy Griffith time frame, you know, the 1950s or whenever that was set, uh, or 60s or whatever. Um, in the 18, late 1860s to up to 1870, both in the Brit in England and some in the South, were thinking that, that the United States was going to redeem all this stuff or pay these debts of the Confederacy off. And so there was actually a run on buying Confederate bonds in England that actually bid them up in value some. And um, you know, much, much less than the face value, but but still not not but worth something. Uh, at, you know, some disc significant discount. In the South, it wasn't so much they were trading, but people kind of held on them. And the Southern Democrats, as they got back, you know, got some more influence, the Democratic Party was uh, pushing to have the federal government redeem all this stuff, which in the 14th Amendment, you know, which is about, I think, voting rights and stuff like that, it also has some other stuff in there. One of which is that the United States government repudiates all debts from the rebellion, um, which means that basically all this stuff was never going to be paid back. Uh, and that may render it essentially worthless as a as a financial vehicle. Now, by 1870, this stuff started gaining a collective value, but the vast majority of it wasn't worth very much. I mean, you could buy piles. You could get piles of 1864 notes for a penny or a dime, you know, it, it, for years. Uh, now, some of the rarer notes started, they started figuring out what was rare. And uh, the first note that became worth face value again was in the 1880s. Uh, the New Orleans printed... Uh, $5 maneuvering note, which is kind of a plain Jane $5 note that became worth $5 in the 1880s. That was the first uh, note uh, that became worth face value. The first time the Montgomery series, the four notes, the $1,650, you know, 1,550 and 100, that's 1,650, right? Uh, guess when do you think that, I'm going to ask you all this. When do, you, when do you think that became worth face value for the first time? You're going to guess first. I'm going to guess... I'm going to guess in the 50s, 1950s. I'm going 1984. <laughs> Actually, it was 1960. Okay. Uh, and the gentleman who's, who did that deal is still alive, by the way. Uh, he uh, sold uh, the high grade. They were high grade. You know, they were not really top line condition notes. 1650 bucks in 1960, the whole set. Uh, as far as we know, that was the first uh, set that became traded at face value. Again, that folks, that's Pierre Fricky at buy F R I C K E at buyvintagemoney.com. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. All right. So special thank thanks again to Pierre Fricky for joining us. Uh, we'll go ahead and dive into the episode. Before we dive in, Chris, or did you have any just overall thoughts watching this episode going in? This one was a lot better than the last one. I thought it was good. It was heartfelt, it was funny. A new character, I believe a new character was introduced and, and he had good attitude and tone. I liked it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And we uh, opened at a town council meeting at Mayor's, Mayor's Pike's office 
and everyone's, everyone wants to evict a man named Frank Myers. Uh, this includes the banker Harlan Fergus, who's making his first appearance on the show. Andy doesn't want to evict, but all the people he owes money to want him gone, and that's almost the entire town council. They also say his house is an eyesore, and the first thing people see when they come to Mayberry, um, Mayor Pike then demands that Andy serve the notice. There are a lot of evictions in Mayberry. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And it's amazing that on this one, Ben Weaver, who, you know, is always yeah. frustrated with people, he's not involved in this discussion. You figure there's a, if there's an eviction going on, ben, Ben's, Ben's going to be around. Yeah, for sure. That's a really good point. Yeah. Okay, so Andy drives over to Frank's house, and they're right. His house is a dump with animals Quick all over thing the place. Before you keep going, is this the first appearance of the loaded goat? There's a goat outside his house. Yes, but that goat's not loaded. It's just an appearance of a goat. Okay. All right. Beautiful goat. Beautiful goat, but it's one of many animals running around this house that's a mess. Um, and Frank is also a bit of a mess. He's older. He's just, he doesn't look like he's doing a very good job taking care of himself. You think today he might be in a nursing home or an assisted living home? You know, I couldn't figure out how old he was. Yeah. I couldn't. I mean, he looked like he'd been sunbaked a little bit. So I couldn't tell if he was an old 50 or, you know, 78. I had no idea. Yeah, it's hard to tell. Uh, he's played by an actor named Andy Clyde, who was a longtime character actor starting in the silent movie area. Movie oh, era. Interesting. Yeah. Have you Did watched the, many silent movies? I've watched several, but um, I don't sit down and just say, hey, I want to watch a silent movie, but I've watched some Buster, some of the Buster Keaton silent films. I watched, um, when it was on the, I watched, I saw Birth of a Nation just to see what the what it was like it's it's as offensive as they as everyone makes it is it's as offensive as it's as it's as it's reputed to be i mean it's pretty bad um <laughs> well at least they don't watched, talk in it yeah uh then i watched you know nosferatu with um you know the one about the the dracula story that was made in germany that's a uh, still scary even uh, even 100 years later so there's oh, i watched a number okay what, what about you Oh, God, no. I've seen, like, the beginning of uh, Singing in the Rain. That's not a silent movie. Yeah, but they're filming silent movies in it. <laughs> have, you so. seen the, have you seen The Artist? No, I've seen The Disaster Artist. That's not the same thing. Okay. Um, at, at OML in D.C., they often play silent movies in the background. I've watched those while I've had some chips and salsa. You know, I've been to OML. I've never seen that. Where where do they play? Oh, it's it's behind the bar. Okay. Maybe this too for their late night menu. Maybe, maybe. I mean, uh, it's good to good to know. Are you sure they're not just playing movies with the sound with the sound turned off? That is a very good point. <laughs> All right. So Andy serves his eviction notice. Frank says business is not good. Um, apparently Frank's business is this making, is great this is one making, of the best lines in the in the episode oh yeah making berries for women's hat which was not is not a lucrative business but Frank says if it goes back in style he's just going to be sitting on a gold mine because he's got all this it's all so these good. berries, berries are also huge huge I mean and I was also of, waiting he said huckleberries I was thinking they wouldn't say huckleberries and they said huckleberries yeah well even I mean you guess you think you're thinking of the massive hats that they would they would fit on but 
you know, you're looking at his business and it's just not a lucrative business. You know, like this is, there's no way this can, you can sustain yourself with this business. It kind of reminds me of, you know, up where they um, always wanted, you know, the the cartoon, yeah, you know, they yeah. always wanted to, they always wanted to take a vacation, but they couldn't because the husband's business was selling balloons one at a time in, in town. I mean, that's just not a lucrative business. You know, he's got to read Reed Hoffman's Blitzscaling book about how you can grow something fast. Yeah. Well, I think I, I think that wasn't the point. I think him and his wife just being happy was the point. But I just was like, I was like, they never got to take their trip. And I'm like, well, that's what happens when you hit your wagon to a balloon peddler. I mean, and that's just going to be, then that yeah. feel like, Frank's kind of running into the same problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So Frank shows Andy his backlog of his box of berries. Andy's just kind of like, yeah, this isn't going to work right now. Andy hands him the notice and it's quite sad. It's very sad, but it's actually sweet. You know, and this is, we say this a bunch, but it's the moment when you know that you see that the town respects Andy Mm-hmm. As much as, you know, they try to set him up in the show. And he's like, I really appreciated getting it from you. Bad news from a friend. It was a yeah. nice moment. It is a nice moment. So we go to Andy and Aunt B and Opie later that evening on the porch. They're talking about the eviction. Opie asks where he's going to go. Um, what is Opie playing? He, it's like he's setting up. So Opie sets up the seat, like asks this tough question of Andy and um, Aunt B but then he's also like doing a strategic art of war, you know, figurine game while he's doing it. It's visually oh, yeah. what he's doing. I assume he was just setting up 10 soldiers, but I, I could be wrong. You know, he, he ends up, I mean, that's the thing is Opie, you know, is always, obviously the writers, you know, create this like way for Opie. He's he has the meandering questions, but then makes this point. I mean, it's just kind of a thing of beauty. I wish I'd been that, been that witty when I was a child. Yeah, I definitely was. You would have enjoyed it. I would. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> what happened now? I mean, it seems like what you peak. You peaked. It all, at six. it all happened when I cut my tail off. I lost all my wit. You lost all your wit. Okay, like Samson, like Samson getting all of his hair cut off. Um, <clears throat> so Andy says that Frank has no place to go. Wait, who's you, Samson? You don't know Samson in the Bible. Samson, the guy with all the, he was like, he was very strong, and he. But the secret was, was it was was in his hair, and um, he he gets his he gets his hair cut off, and he's no longer strong. No, the Samson I was thinking of when you said that is there's a movie called Dunstan Checks In from the '90s that has Jason Alexander and the kid that was in the Santa Claus, and it's about a monkey let loose at a six star hotel during the social event of the season. And the monkey has this awful owner. And at one point, Lord Rutledge, the owner, mentions Samson and what happened to Samson, which was Dunstan's brother. And Lord Rutledge had killed the monkey. And that's the Samson I went to. That's not the Samson I was referring to. Okay. All right. So Andy out, says... You should check out the movie, though. It's pretty yeah, good. I'll check I out the mean, Bible I, if you check out the movie. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not checking out... I'm not checking out Dunstan checks in. Is I, Samson covered in the Passion of the Christ? No, Samson is not covered in the Passion of the Christ. Samson is covered in the Old Testament. Oh, okay. The prequel. The, the, the prequel. Uh, the, the, um, 
So I know I saw I, I, I passed on the opportunity to see Dunstan checks in in the 90s when I was old enough to go see it on my own. I'm not bothering to see it now. Oh, it holds up. Yeah. So Andy says Frank has no place to go. Opie says he should let Frank move in with them. Andy and Andy are uncomfortable with it, but then they decide it's a good idea. And as Andy says, Opie is an outstanding fella. I get why they're a little worried about him moving in. The man lives with chickens. Are they worried that he's going to, you know, bring his pet chicken, which also, do you think he lets all of the chickens in the house or just the pet? So that was kind of specific. I understood where their, um, their trepidation came from. I don't think, I mean, I just would worry that fleas. Yeah, that's fair. Maybe they sprayed him off before he came inside. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they did. Um, so Franks moves in with Taylor's. He sits down on the couch with a strung box with his valuables. And Andy suggests selling something to get his house back. And Frank says he can't part with his valuables unless there is an emergency. These, the, going through the valuables is such a delightful scene too. This is also part of the reason why I love, like Frank really starts to come into his element here when he's going through and then he just continues to grow as a character as, as the yeah. episode progresses. No, I agree. And I just think it's hilarious that he's like, I can't part with these valuables unless there's an emergency. And he's sitting on the, he's moving in with the tailors, but he can't figure out that. Um, you can't part with the spoon of the Milwaukee skyline. Yeah. It reminded me of a friend of mine. He broke up with his girlfriend. His girlfriend and he, he broke up and they were living together. And he basically had to move out. And it was kind of like a little sudden. And he, you know, he was not in the best place. Why'd they break up? Why'd they break up? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Air out um, the dirty laundry, Aaron. No, I, I don't know. But he asked me if he could live with me and with me and my wife and me for more than, for no more than 30 days. And I just had to tell him no. I and mean, he was kind of a stressful thing. I was like, no, you can't. I'm sorry. You know, this is, this just isn't going to work. And cause I mean, I was worried like he was, uh, you yeah, know, you've got a huge house. It's like eight I, bedrooms. This is not what this was when I lived in an apartment. So that was, that was another thing, but so I'm on the phone. So I, so it works out. He find he, he, he ends up getting his, getting, getting situated. But I call him up and I said one, one day I'm like, hey, what you doing? I'm like, oh, he goes, I'm getting ready to go have dinner with my grandfather. And I'm like, oh, your grandfather's in town. He goes, no, he lives here. And I'm just kind of like, wait a minute. You were asking to live with me and you've got family in town? And, and, and he said, well, it would have just been so sad moving back in with moving in with my grandfather. And I'm like, I think I was like, let's let's get some perspective here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so they're going through his valuables, and in it, they find a municipal bond from 1861. And it says that the bond is redeemable for 100 bucks at 8.5% interest that is compounded annually. Andy goes and calls the bank. You know, that compounded interest is how Warren Buffett made all of his money. They're really onto yes. something. I did, I did know that. I did know that. And, <laughs> and so... We have a we go to a special town council meeting, and Andy comes in with the bond, and it turns out that Mayberry owes Frank Myers three hundred forty nine thousand one hundred nineteen dollars and twenty seven cents, which is about three point one million dollars today. 
that's a cash cow. But the thing that's ridiculous is they're they're running a bad operation there. If the town only has ten thousand dollars in the bank, yeah. Well, I mean, it's back then. I mean, that's you know, I mean, we're talking about you know by that standard, they probably like them having ten thousand dollars in the bank was probably they had that was probably they at least had probably a hundred. Like a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that still doesn't seem adequate, though. Like enough I mean, to keep the payroll afloat. No, we're, we're talking about we're talking about budget. We're talking about cash reserves. Yeah. So I mean, they they they've got the payroll and everything afloat. I mean, they just didn't expect to have to pay out a. Uh, we're talking huge reserves, bonus. unallocated expenses. Uh, yeah. Okay. Now three. Now the thing of it is, is but it was kind of like Mr. Fricky told us when he was when we were when we were speaking with him is yes, that. Pierre. Pierre. And it was kind of like they were issuing these, these towns were issuing these bonds and, you know, kind of just not really with really no plans on how they were going to really pay it back. It was, they were just issuing, issuing, issuing these. And yeah. It's this line from How I Met Your Mother where they say, you know, whose problem that sounds like? Future Ted and future Marshall's problem. Future Ted and future Marshall are going to be really good at solving that problem. Yeah. Yeah, and then, and they obviously they you know they weren't they weren't very good at solving this, but Frick says he'll take it in cash, and we go to commercial. Now, I just I I don't mean, but I mean, if you grow up as a southerner, you grow up in the South, you know, it's automatically almost ingrained into your head the Civil War was from eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five. And I think they all seceded in the 1860s, if I'm in 1860, if I'm not mistaken, or in early 1861. Yeah. But the, I don't know. So anyway, I like so I just. Is, I like that you're getting all hung up on this. And then everything I bring up on the show, you're like, you think the writer's room cared about the continuity and how historically accurate it would be? That's what you sound like. You have a point, Chris. <laughs> After the commercial, Frank is smoking a cigar and Mayor Pike is begging him to be reasonable, but Frank is not budging. This is another fantastic Frank moment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's just, he's, I mean, and I don't blame him. I mean, they were not nice to him. No, no. He's just no. soaking it up. Good for him. Yeah. Back at the mayor's office, they're stumped about what to do. At one point, Harlan Ferguson, or Harlan Ferguson asks to, um, offer him a deal of $25 a month to cover to cover this and I mean like I'm like that is the that's what's just the who, who would take such a deal you know and so they ask Andy to once again go back and make a deal with with um with Frank which he does um you know he goes to Frank's Frank's trying to order some stuff from the catalog and Andy just says look how did Tam can't afford to pay the bond how did that work he said he had already ordered some stuff from the catalog. Did he do it on the internet? Well, I mean, I mean, I'm just kidding. No, I mean, it wasn't the internet, but did he already pay for this? No, you would. If I'm not mistaken, what you would do is you'd put your order in, and I think you could either order it, they'd ship it to you with a with a bill, or you could pay in advance. But I think most people just ordered it and had it shipped with a with a bill that they were going to pay. Oh, okay. All right. And Andy explains that the town can't afford to pay the bond. 
Frank's dejected, but just as kind of dejected because he thought he was going to have an opportunity to fix his house up. And Sid just says it's not fun being the fellow with the worst house in town. And this then is, Andy, this is sad. Has, this part's sad. Yeah. But Frank has such good emotion. He's yeah. such a good character. He's funny when he needs to be funny. He's sincere in a dime's in a in a moment's notice. He's an excellent actor. Yeah. And he comes up with a great idea. We go to the town council fixing up Frank's house. Frank's very proud. Then asks to borrow his brush to paint a picture of his great-grandfather shaking hands with Robert E. Lee. Harlan realizes the bond was then realizes like a light bulb goes off in his head. I mean, they like they've racked ever their brains on everything else, but it has to be the words of my great grandfather shaking hands with Robert E. Lee is what or his great grandfather doing that. That's what it sends it off with, with Harlan. Realize this the bond was bought with Confederate money and is worthless. And they immediately just go back to nasty. And Mayor Pike tells Andy to evict him. And Andy finally was just like, you did a nice thing for somebody. And then just kind of basically browbeats them and um, giving, giving Frank money, loaning Frank money to um, pay off his debts and keep the house. Yeah, very well handled by Andy. Yeah. yeah. This was some OP type maneuvering. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he kind of just basically shames him into it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So a couple comes, a couple drives up and asks where they can find a hotel in this charming town. And Andy beams and welcomes them to Mayberry. And they say, Mayberry, we thought we were in Elm City. <laughs> I did like that. I think I Elm too. City is also the town next to Schitt's Creek that they always have to go into to go shopping. Oh, really? I think so. Yeah. In the epilogue, Andy brings frank into mayor pike's office and says he has a letter from the president talking about visiting mayberry it turns out the letter's from jefferson davis i didn't really care much for this it was a i think this was a poor epilogue it was a little it was a little silly and a little weak i mean it was um you know and i don't know if, if but I, and i don't really know what the you know what they were going what they were going to do with it because i don't know if a, i mean maybe back then a letter from jefferson I mean, I guess a letter from Jefferson Davis is still worth worth money to the right collector, but it seemed a little silly. Yeah. Yeah. It felt a little bit like show and tell. Get on with it. Go back to city government. Yeah. <laughs> Mayor Pike. I mean, Mayor Pike was, you know, he was not really worried about Frank Meyer's vote. That's that's for sure. No, absolutely not. So how many whistles would you give this? I give this one seven, all because of Frank. Yeah. That's great. I would agree. Frank is great. And, you know, it's a, uh, it's, it's weird in this day and age with you know, doing a, with a show that has a plot that focuses on something like worthless Confederate money. But yeah, that was 18, it was 1961. So it's just a complete, it was just a completely different time and a completely different view on the civil war. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I don't remember that, you know, but I, I believe you. I don't remember it either. I'm just telling you that, you know, it was just a bit different, I'm assuming. <laughs> it's just that it was closer to the Civil War than it is now. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you had, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, you had people who, and you had folks whose ancestors, I mean, I don't think it's anything where people people have it and do it now, but I mean, I think back then you had people who's, you know, he said his great-great-grandfather, I mean, as old as he looked, I was assuming it would have been his. His, he, I mean, yeah, you know, for he, sure. He, I mean, he probably. I mean, the actor 
Baker himself was born in 1885. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, that was a very, that was still an issue that was very much relevant and discussed, you know, for that generation growing up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, all right. Any final thoughts? No, just, it's really good to see you. It's good to see you too, Christopher. <laughs> um, thanks again to Pierre Fricky for joining us and discussing uh, Civil War currency. Um, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Loaded Goat Pod. If you have any questions or comments for us, go to theloadedgoat.net and submit a question. You know, we've also forgot, give us some five stars. We're, we're working our butts off over here. Leave a comment. Give us some, give us a, one of those good ratings. Yeah. Yeah, we are. We are. We're spending a lot of time on this for, for the, for the Andy Griffith fans. So next up is, is Barney on the rebound and Christopher in the meantime, I'll take it in cash. All right. Let me just go to the bank. <laughs>